This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hell, we're sharing the rest of our conversation with Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss today. At first, we thought about having it all in one app, but there was enough of significance, impact, and quality to warrant a different time for the rest. Above all, the stories we tell ourselves is a reflection of the ones that we choose and the ones that we let. How much of our life is decided by them is something we get to decide and to rewrite, revise. So I invite you, as you listen to both of the tales shared today, on memory loss and, of course, time, to think about the ones that you tell of yourself and others as well, and those you'd care to keep in mind. We hope you enjoy. My father passed recently. He had AML and rapidly progressing dementia. And when I, a week and a half before he, or maybe two weeks before he passed, we had gone to see him as a whole family. And he was, he was deeply into the advanced stages of dementia at that point where he didn't recognize us or would be caught up in his own ideas of what was happening because the brain still likes to create a sense of what is based on what it can perceive, even if it makes no sense to anyone else. And in the midst of one of these advanced delusions where he, for the most part, wasn't there, he looks at my mother, grabbed her wrist and felt the pulse at it. And do you know what he said? This, this is where the ocean begins. And I just sat there baffled. The one okay. moment of lucidity, yes. Yeah, yes. Somewhere in his mind, it led to that. That made perfect and absolute sense. I mean, the 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 coma that I was in was in 2010. Um, I had complications after childbirth and spent 10 days mm-hmm. in the coma and died a couple of times during that process. Mm-hmm. Um, again, something I don't recommend. 
<laughs> not on the to-do list and definitely not on the bucket list. No, no, I would should against that one. Like <laughs> you, you should, should not do that. But when I came out, I didn't know my own name. Mm. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what had happened. And also for two or three days, my short-term memory in, wasn't working. So we have, we all have three main forms of memory. Mm-hmm. We have what's called working memory, which has a very short duration, but it's where you juggle stuff. You know, it's where you recite, you know, I got to get a loaf of bread, a stick of butter and a gallon of milk. Like, and you sort of recite that to you, but you have to keep reciting it or Mm -hmm. it fades away or it moves from there into short-term memory, which is, as it sounds, short-term, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15, depends on the item depends on how much distraction is going on, whether it will successfully move from working memory into short-term memory. And then long-term memory are your lasting memories. Who was your third grade teacher or what was the first vacation you remember going on? Those sorts of things. And for me, all of that was wiped clean. I had a hard system reboot on all of that. And that included my name. And it included my husband's name. At that point, we had been married 10 years and had two children. I didn't remember any of this. A lot of things. I didn't know why I was in the hospital. I didn't know why I was I was literally um, restrained to the bed because I kept trying to pull out my IVs because I didn't understand why, why I had them. Yeah. You know? And so one of the things that they did, this was at Mass General in Boston, one of the things that they did is that the social workers worked with family members. And when you send your child to preschool, they often create an all about me poster Mm -hmm. with like, this is my picture of my house and this is my favorite color and this is my favorite music, that kind of deal. They had my family do that for me. And part of the reason for that is to give the family some sense that they're doing something, that they're accomplishing something. And part of it is to remind the staff that this is not just a lump in the bed, but this is a person who has preferences and a history and a family. I used it also as a primer for myself. I would lie there at night after I came out of the coma. I remained in the hospital for six weeks and I would read it and I would recite these things until I committed them to memory. And I've always wondered, <laughs> what if they l- lied or got Slip, an, got something wrong? Slipped in a few improvements. Well, <laughs> you know, I, however it might be, like if they didn't know my favorite color and so they just sort of made something up or if they didn't know what kind of music I like to listen to, if that, like if they had listed, like I've never liked classical music. I like music with lyrics. Sure. I connect more with music with lyrics. What if they had said that my favorite music is classical music? Who would I be now? Because I took everything on that poster as sacrosanct and stone truth. And I would read it and recite it. And that became who I was. That became my declarative statements about how old I am, how many children I have, what my favorite color is, where I live. You know, it's fascinating. With folks who lose their memories, particularly in dementia and other situations like, that recitative part of the brain is usually the last to go. Right. And and I had, I also could not remember, like I had, my husband will tell me now that 
there are times where I would ask three or four times in the same hour, what happened? Why am I here? And um, I've had a, a, a shorter term but comparable situation in my late 30s when I developed epilepsy. The first major seizure I had, I spent about five hours in what's called status epilepticus, which basically means I just kept doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And um, again, don't do that. Not fun. And I came home after that. And one of the things that they don't warn you about having seizures is that everything hurts. Like your hair hurts. You, you, you find muscles you didn't know you had. Your fingertips hurt because everything clenches, right? It's, it's effectively you've electrocuted yourself in a way. And so I wasn't feeling good. I, I wasn't happy, but I was safe. And so they discharged me home. And this is a point now, this is 2016 approximately. And by this point, we had four children. And the youngest walked through the room and I looked at my husband and I said, who's that? (laughs) And that's terrifying. It's terrifying for everybody involved. Like, luckily the kid didn't hear me, but... You know, my husband and I both looked because, you know, you watch, you learn to watch the people around you for their reaction to mm-hmm. the things that you say. And when they look at you with the big eyes and they go a little pale, you're like, oh, I just, I just asked a bad thing. I shouldn't have asked that question, but I don't know why. Like, I don't, I don't know what yet. All I know is there's a social cue here that says that was not the right question to ask. And, and so that sort of, again, that you luckily, post-seizure, the long-term memory comes back quicker. Mm. You know, five hours as compared to 10 days, right? right. It, you, it comes back quicker. it out, but it's still there. Yeah, it's a soft reboot rather than a hard reboot, you know. And Not a factory reset. Yeah, and so that that's that feeling of what... One of the things, I guess, which is analogous to all of this, is is when I hear people say, either in regular conversation or on a podcast or TV or whatever, I'll never forget. And I'm like, you don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be amazed. The things you can forget about yourself, about your life, about your story. And so there has to be a flexibility to it. But the number of people who fall under this category of, I think it, therefore it is true, isn't I mean, I understand the lure of that and the comfort of that, but it's a falsehood. Yeah. When I write, I've had to teach the people I work with in my family that I cannot converse with them at the same time. And they thought, oh, it's just because you're having an interior monologue with the characters. And I went, oh, if only, you know, if only it was I can't write dialogue and talk on the phone at the same time because I can't. Even though in normal conversation, I can talk to six people once and be fine. And the answer is that when I'm in that conversation with six people, I'm here. When I'm in an entirely fictional world with everything going on, everything that's true about it, the story, the characters, the facial expressions, all that, as one of my friends said, he's, there are times when you're just not on this planet. And I've had to learn that over many years. I know you'll be back, but right now you're not here. Because I've had to apologize for going, I know it looked like I was listening. But it wasn't anything external. <laughs> it's hard because people like to think of it as, oh, it's just a right brain, left brain thing or something as simple you know, and dichotomous as that. But the reality is it's just as intense a focus. The sensory input is not something anyone else can experience. So yeah, my friend saying it is another world is accurate because I'm experiencing a thing that is not this. 
and need to focus on it in order to be able to convey what little that I can remember well enough and use my facility with words to describe well enough. And even then, there are times where I, I think, as I said on the show a while back, I discovered a character was blind and I stood there stock still on the trail for a moment and said, no, this is chapter 20 something. That's impossible. You know, really like Star Wars moment. You're not my father. You can't be. <laughs> right. You're a robot guy with a laser sword. And I rolled back to the beginning of the book. And this has happened many times since. But I looked and sure enough, the truth had been there. I just hadn't had the right words to put to it. I had figured out that reality and conveyed it already without knowing what I was trying to say in particular terms. I just found the word finally chapters later. And that's part of why for me that immersion is so important because I can capture the signal without knowing what it will convey until later on when I've had the chance to look back and try as you had with the tree to go, oh, right, this is how these things fit together. I'm not mad. I just didn't remember because- You could be both. All artists are a little mad, let's be honest. But the One of my teachers said, I don't know how you keep all of this in your mind. And the reality is you don't. Not in the active part of your brain that helps you do the day-to-day. The the fact that we use the word remember, I like to think of as remembering. Because in reality, when you call up a memory, you're just rewriting it based on the details you remember and the ones you add that kind of make sense. It's just a script you're revising based on what's still stored in there. And I had to experience this with the loss of my father, where I could acknowledge rationally that he's gone, but there'd be a thought that'd come up, not even a memory. And I would have to append to that. Yes, but he's not here anymore. And I'm, I'm still the same person. It's all still me, but not all of me at the same time has arrived at this destination yet. And it's a weird phenomenon to experience where you can witness your own memories, not connecting as linearly as you'd think they do. Because as think as far as we know now, the way the mind disperses stuff, it's just kind of connected out like root branches. Yes, here's a part of that memory, but it's also tied over to that smell, that taste, whatever happened 15 years ago, and 12 other things, all of which could be the entry point to the memory itself. But even the path you take to get back to that thing you're remembering might change how you remember it this time and the next. So yeah, to your point, even if you do think you have a memory, there are only certain beats in all likelihood that have remained the same. It's more like jazz, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I as well. I'm I'm fascinated by the whole concept of memory in 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 two ways. One, I look at my children and I wonder, like, there are times where, for instance, my oldest has talked about the yellow house we used to live in. Sure, we've never lived in a yellow house. <laughs> she did, but in her mind, mm-hmm. she saw one photo in which the, the reality is the house was sort of a tan brownish color Mm -hmm. and she's wearing a yellow shirt and in her mind those swapped and that became fact for her and so i've always wondered you know as successive generations happen and more and more is documented in photograph in in podcast form and in writing form how does that change our memory you know, because it creates a sense of fact, a sense of verifiable fact, even if it doesn't exist. Even though they're just fragments. Exactly. And the second is that, you know, I, I spent those six weeks in the hospital. Well, I used to be a blogger mm-hmm. back in the day. And so I spent a significant part of time of that six weeks where I was 
if anybody who's spent any time in the hospital knows it's profoundly boring, like it's deeply boring and you can only do one thing for so long. You can only watch TV for so long. You can only read for so long, whatever. But I spent a significant part of time reading my old blog, trying to absorb bits and pieces of my old life to try to commit them to memory. The problem with that is that those are snippets of the story I wanted to tell in that moment. But that doesn't mean they were true. Like I wasn't. They, were, they probably have the emotional truth in them. They were, they were my truth in that moment. Yes. And they were reflective of the facts as I knew them in that moment. But they were also a time of venting and a time of complaining. Mm-hmm. Or a time of celebrating. They were they were the highs and the lows of emotion. You don't make very many blog posts that are just like, yeah, I made a sandwich for lunch today. It was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, and and so that experience, you know, was so there were so many steps in in terms of choosing to write a blog post, which aspects of my day I chose to include or not include which times I chose to just delete the whole thing, mm-hmm. which effectively for me, as well as for any readers, erased that thing, that day, that experience. It is curated. I I encounter this with my students all the time where what they want to write are the big things, the explosions, the fantastic, the magical, the emotional. And my challenge to them always is, Write the moment of selecting which brush to paint with, not what they paint. Write the moment of putting the meal together, what they sit down, what they say, what the slicing of a carrot is like. Well, that's boring. Yes, it could be. But who is that person in that moment and why are they doing that? How are they choosing to? What are all those thousands of little decisions they make there that reveal who they are? And that's what you lose in looking at the blog post, right? Because you see the highlight reel, the big bombast from the movie. But who's all of the Kate that's left on the editing floor? Well, and the reality is maybe that's it. Yeah. Maybe that's me. Like that, that's <laughs> something I had to grapple with is maybe I err in the side of like I don't have bipolar disorder, but maybe I err in that direction of the extremes of emotion. Maybe I never sit in the center. That's another possibility. Right. And I can't know. I don't have any way of knowing. The only cues I ever got were once in a while, I would say or do a thing that would have people who had known me for a long time do a double take. (laughs) And I would think I just, for a long time, what I thought was I just did it wrong. And it took me a long time and a lot of grace to give myself the space to know what I what I had been doing was trying to be this person that I'm not anymore and that it's okay to let go of that person and to be who I am now. And other people may opt to disagree with me or to tell me I'm not acting like myself. And I had to learn to just sort of nod and smile and be like, okay, but what you what you mean is I'm not acting like the Kate you expect to encounter. I, I need to find this fellow's name. He was at the New Media Summit. He was one of those speakers. Uh, you first probably heard of him, if you attend, by the loud proclamation of, woo, you do at every moment he had the, he could. And it was loud. We were in a group of 
200, 300 people, and you could hear it within the ballroom. And I have auditory sensitivity from spinal injury, so I don't really like loud noises. Mm -hmm. And I chose to be irritated because I found it irritating until finally he shared his story. And as it turns out, he was a drug addict who got hit by a car, barely survived, lost a good sense of who he was. I don't remember if he lost his memory entirely, but had the opportunity, literally even figuratively, to rebuild himself. And the woo for him is the, wow, I'm still alive. It was just a, I want to, I'm going to physically celebrate the fact that I have, not that I survived this, but just that I'm here right now. And whoever I was before, I don't have to be anymore. You know, I'm going to be the guy who celebrates being here and use that as my foundation. And I said to him, I still find that sound incredibly annoying, but I appreciate who you are and why you need to. And that for me was a moment of having to stretch my empathy because I really wanted to hate, you know, there are people I do just find irritating that I'd rather not be around. And he was, but hearing why he deliberately made this choice, even if it was disruptive to my everyday life, does push that boundary a little further. And I think there are people who could look at what you went through, who have been what you went through and could think and wallow on the woe is me. You know, what have I lost? Right. And here, here it does, I think, come part to mindset. You could have and could still be mourning what wasn't anymore, but you chose to discover who you are now. You can do both, though. Like, there is a grief. There is a, there is a loss of self and a loss of plan and a loss of reality. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and absorb that. Sure. The, the loss of a future that will no longer be is a strange pain that you don't find the shape of until you're living through it. Right. And, and, and so I, I do mourn that and I do grieve the losses and the plans and the intentions that I once had, or at least the ones that I read about, the ones that I've been told that I have, I have to accept mm-hmm. that. Now, so I remain, I, I've, I've regained many of my long-term memories, but there's still about a year, about most of the year of 2009 that is just gone. And by now, I have to accept that. Like, I feel like if I keep pushing and I keep waiting and I play the affirmation game of I'm going to remember it, that's lying to myself and I'm setting myself up for failure. So I've had to accept that there are limitations to what I am and what I can do. And so I grieve and mourn the losses. And at the same time, I appreciate the life that I have now. When my grandmother passed a few years ago, her name was Rosalind, and it was a it was a hard time. And I'm not one much to believe in the afterlife. It's just not a thing I found a, a way to wrap my head around that feels satisfactory to me. Not that I deny others the desire to believe it. A week after her funeral, which was around Thanksgiving, I was hiking on the trail, and there had been a snowstorm. It was gray out, overcast, snow was on the ground, but underneath this one mailbox, there was a single stalwart pink rose, just stubbornly holding on to the shadow of that mailbox. And I don't know why, but I looked and I said, hi, Grandma. It just, for me in that moment, I read and felt it as some acknowledgement of her presence. It could be, it might not be at all, but I chose to, within my narrative of that experience, frame that moment as a coda, as a a little bit of closure to it. And it's fascinating because my family does have a little bit of a history of ancestor worship and belief that some folks stay on for a while to watch after they've passed. It's very deep set. And 
I've never much adhered to it, but it was not a conscious choice even, I think, although the decision to continue believing it is, right? Because that's a separate thing. You can believe and experience the thing and then choose whether or not you continue to believe in what you experienced the way you did. But that rose flowers now a bush. It's been there years now, thriving. So I think even if it wasn't her at all, it was just a random bush growing under a mailbox. In the same way that there are this swath of wildflowers of all colors now on a separate part of the trail where there never were before. It's just a reminder that there's more to life than what we try to fit into the things we used to define it. Well, and I think that we ascribe meaning to things and that that is okay. Like there's nothing wrong. You know, there, there aren't a lot of things in life that inherently hold meaning across all people and all circumstances. Right. Uh, let's go with the big one. Let's go with murder. Because why not? True crime, right? That sometimes it is entirely wrong. There is no justification for it. It is wrong. It's bad to do. And the person who chooses it will never be safe among society because they will choose it again. Other times, there are concepts like self-defense of others. Mm-hmm. Or a crime of passion or, a, you know, a domestic incident, that kind of thing, where it's the single worst day of your life, you regret it the second it happened, and you know it's never going to happen again. There still should be consequences, but apparently it doesn't hold the same meaning across all events, right? And that, and that can apply as well to looking at a wildflower or a rose, at, at, you know, at the side of the road or whatever that... If you ascribe meaning to it in a way that in any way helps your life and doesn't hurt anybody else, I'm all for it. And there are people who get offended by that, you know, people who (laughs) will tell me that their religion, for instance, inherently holds meaning. And I'm like, not for me. I, when I was in Uluru, Ayers Rock, the big one down in the center-ish of Australia, one of the things that our guide, who was not Aboriginal, said to us was, look, they're not asking you to respect their beliefs. They're just asking you to respect that they have beliefs. Right. And that this rock is central to what they think is sacred in the world. And they feel really bad if you die on it. So please don't. <laughs> please don't. Right. Right. Yeah. Don't. That's another bad idea. Right. Many bad ideas. And, and that's what I'm saying is that there are not very many things that inherently have meaning. I mean, the fact, sorry, not sorry, the fact that flat earthers legitimately believe their thing. <laughs> God, I, oh, I could go into so much. Right. But that, 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 that to me is proof that even gravity doesn't hold the same meaning Doesn't for everyone. matter as much. Well, it, it, it can, you know, how much it matters is a different question, but it doesn't hold the same meaning for some people as others. Right. You might not be in gravity, but gravity believes in you. You, you know, and, and what it means. So I'll share this because it's an experience I had that touches upon what you're saying. Hamilton came out. It was an all minority cast by and large, save for a few characters. And that caused an uproar, positive and negative for a variety of reasons. I happen to love it. But this weird phenomenon in my own life happened. My father was a history buff. I'm familiar with Hamilton as a character. He had the book that the musical is based on. I forgot Hamilton was white. In my mind, I just started to remember Hamilton as a black man. Because 
the most recent depictions, parlance, narrative structure of him portrayed him that way. And I saw a picture of him on a biography. Went, oh, that's right. Hamilton was white. <laughs> how fluid memory is. It is. And in the meaning, how, how both how much and what something means to, to loop it all the way back around to starting with my podcast is that even if myself and my guest, even if my guest tells the story they intend to tell and I understand their story in the way I was meant to understand it, in the way they intended me to understand it. There's still thousands of people who are listening to every given episode. I have no control over that. None. I have no way of knowing what filters they're hearing it through, which aspects of their own life are pinging or not pinging off mm -hmm. of the episode. I don't have any control over how the story is absorbed. And so the only thing I can control is to present the story and give them space to tell their story, even if I disagree, even if I don't like it, even if I don't understand it, I give the space for them to tell their story because I already accept that any given listener, you put three people in a room who listen at the same time in the same environment, and they might develop three entirely different interpretations of what the story meant. We use this analogy in a recent episode, the idea of pouring, simply pouring water into a cup. But in this instance, not only is the cup at a separate time and place, you don't even get to control as the host the shape, the, recept the receiving vessel for what you are providing. That is entirely on the other end. There's a delay in time and space and thought. And it could be any volume. It might be for me, the cup holds, cup holds significance because of a, well, a few reasons, but the one that I'll come to mind, I bring to mind, I said on the show is the, the Zen cone or the parable rather of the sage who wants wisdom and insight from the, the team master. And I probably shared this a while back, but very briefly, a sage goes to ask the team master for enlightenment and the team master instead proceeds to perform a ceremony where he keeps on pouring and pouring the tea into the cup until it overflows and scalds the visiting sage is offended and shouts him, how could you do this to me? And the, the tea master says very simply, you're like this cup already overflowing. How can I put more in? So yes, to your point, maybe we're pouring out the cup but, or we're pouring out the, the vessel, the show to be received, but whatever's on the other end is empty, is already full, is broken, is too cracked, isn't large enough to hold that particular amount at the time. I know I listen to podcasts, I listen to stories again, I watch them again, and it's always a different experience each time. And I think there's a beauty in that that is strangely hard to put into words. <laughs> but Well, it's proof that you change from listen to listen, even if the stimulus doesn't change, which wraps it back around as well to the concept of a parasocial relationship. We are living things and we grow. You bring your own teacup. Sure. You bring your own mug. You bring your own punch bowl. Like you, you bring the vessel that you're going to bring. And you expect the other person to know how hot you want the liquid to be and how close to the, the edges you want it to be filled mm -hmm. and whether you want it 
you know, milk and sugar and all, you know, all of the, like all of these details, but you don't tell them because you can't tell them because you don't know what they don't know. That's what a parasocial relationship is, is that you never tell them. It is a microcosm of our everyday encounters with each other. This idea that if I could just put everything I want into the right vessel, the right container, I could have it all forever. That's the bargain he makes in Faust. But it's such a hard thing to accomplish, <laughs> particularly now when everything seems so instantaneous, but is still so distant in many ways. Your expectations of what, let's stick with the tea ceremony, your sure. expectations of what will happen, that's, those are the stories you tell yourself regarding how it will go and what your role will be and what you can and cannot control about the situation. You may be correct or you may be lying to yourself and largely you won't know until it happens. The relationship that you have with the other person as part of the tea ceremony, that's social. There's a certain understanding, unspoken largely, or spoken by other people in the past, or... There's precedent, yes. Just communicated by, by, by social cues mm -hmm. in interaction. Then the parasocial relationship comes in when you start believing that the other person involved knows things about you or that you know things about them that frustrate or stymie or limit the experience. I have one person that I know on Facebook. I'm, I'm, I'm censoring myself deeply here, but I have one person <laughs> that I know on Facebook who we have a friend in common. Mm -hmm. And my knowledge of this friend is developed over the span of more than a decade. And so I understand that they are multifaceted, that they only choose to post certain specific things on Facebook, but that they actually have other interests and other personality traits. And likewise, the third, the newer friend that knows both of us seems to believe that the posts on Facebook are reflective of this human in all ways. And so they choose to make comments along those lines or to tag that person in other, you know, fourth party posts or to make assumptions yes. that they know about this person. And, and that is a sense of connection. And sometimes that's enough to get you through the day. And a sense of connection is better than isolation and loneliness. So fair enough. But then on the other side, they create assumptions and beliefs that may not be rooted in reality. It's often a sense of false intimacy. I belong to artist communities, and it's common in a lot of those to extend your relationship with characters and other people's content into the realm of fan fiction, of not per se ownership, but in the legal sense anyway, but in the sense that a portion of your experience of this character is yours. And that's true. You can read or experience anything, any portion of content created by someone. And that experience is yours to take and to have. And I don't believe it's the creator's role or duty or purpose to usurp that. Although if it's wildly different from what the creator intended, they can certainly state that because <laughs> they can. But I've noticed that often there's this attachment to characters, fictional characters, that is 
deep and long lasting. And if it's a character that has no further input to it, you are effectively having a relationship, a parasocial relationship with a non-entity that seems like a person in most ways. And I'm not a psychologist, but I know on a certain level, particularly in terms of the emotional experience, the mind doesn't differentiate in terms of what makes you had sappy, had sappy, sad, happy. <laughs> both, really, honestly, both. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, the emotional work, the emotional yes. labor, it, it can be the same. And that's why I'm saying with a parasocial relationship, it's not differentiated from social re- relationship by effort. Mm. That there are people who have listened to every episode of my podcast. And like I said, I'm I'm in the neighborhood of 350 right now. So bless their hearts. I mean, it's also terrifying. Like those poor people, (laughs) I'm tired of me. (laughs) I don't know why they're not tired of me. Uh, And so that means they've put work in. Mm -hmm. They've paid attention. They've invested emotional labor. And I do acknowledge and appreciate that. But that doesn't mean that they know me. And it certainly doesn't mean that I know them. And so it's that illusion of reciprocity, whereas most regular social relationships are more transactional. And you have a sense quicker, you get quicker feedback about did this work based on immediate sense of frustration or the early cues of like, okay, wait, something's not quite right here. Whereas with a parasocial relationship, you can listen to all 350 episodes that I've put out, that's a long time to really lean in and believe that you know something or everything about me. I am in part struggling with this right now because as a creator, particularly nowadays, it behooves you to be known by your fans, to have some level of relationship with them continuously online. And in part, this will likely mean that I will share some readings from the book auditory, in auditory or visual format or both and do so on a fairly regular basis, plus yeah, some type of weekly or every other week show experience. And it's peculiar for me because I'm a fairly private human being. So as much as being on a podcast at this point after so many years I've lost track of, is just me sitting in front of a microphone talking to people. It's still performative for me to have a camera in front of an audience. And I get weirdly self-conscious about that because I start thinking about, well, what are they seeing? Who are they seeing? I see that little micro version of myself in the Zoom box. And I get so caught up in the, in the perceptions of what is occurring as opposed to just being in the moment. Because... It's immediate, right? The difference with a podcast is that I record, and unless it's live, I'm not seeing your reaction as you listen to me. I'm hearing you and sometimes seeing the guest I have on the show, but the audience, no. They react however they react, and I don't know that unless the fragment of them who does respond does. But act of actually being there as a creator going, hey, you know, here I spent the last half a week in the hospital because of X, Y, Z. So, you know, sorry, so-and-so couldn't come out on time, content-wise. I know it's essential and normal as a being an online creator these days, a fact about my life I would share normally to people outside of that innermost circle. 
you know, when I was in grad school, people weren't aware that I could swear. Well, and I would say I have a little bit the reverse in the sense that, you know, because my, my show is conversational, not an interview, and it ranges all over. And I don't know, 90% of the time, I don't know what we're going to talk about until we talk about it. And so you're getting my, ex, you know, my, my contemporaneous mm-hmm. response. And as well, I act as though I don't have any boundaries. I act as because there are no topics that I consider verboten in terms sure. of coming on my show. And I get I get engaged and excited and and invested in pretty much every episode in one way or another. And so I think people view me as being very prone to self-disclosure or 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 just being very open and about certain topics I mm-hmm. am but that doesn't mean that I am an open book without restriction I've lived through a lot of trauma this year, and I'm not entirely here yet. I came back two weeks. I came back after a two-week trip, and I re-recorded the eulogy so that we could have a good record of it. And afterwards, I sat there and said, "I don't think I can do that again." I know people wanted the eulogy, and I lost my voice the day of the funeral. We're going to share as the the closer to this, because I did record that via part as well as an independent for the folks who want access to the file. And I think, as I told you, there had been this whole expectation that as, you know, someone who's been writing since I was two, I'd write a brilliant performative piece because that's what I do. Mm -hmm. And it was so existentially horrifying to hear that and go, grief has denied me words. I, I maybe will find a way to make this work, but even though I did, and it was, as far as people have told me, a beautiful experience, I lost my voice the day of the funeral. But to get to my point here, it's, yeah, in the interviews I've done since then, it's it's not that I'm not entirely here, but I do find that I'm not entirely here sometimes. So I, I'm trying to be mindful of that because I'm, well, this might just be where I'm at for a while and I have to not should and could and would it, but just live it. Right. Because I, I did go through that. The, well, you know, I'm not crying. I should be crying because that's what people do when they grieve. And, and I went through and said, no, I'm just too traumatized to. <laughs> I don't have any tears left right now. I mean, my father died in April 2019. Mm-hmm. And immediately after that, you know, I mean, first of all, for for several, many episodes. So for several weeks, friends of mine did the intro and outro for me right. because I was not able to find the words. I wasn't able to revisit knowing that like I recorded this conversation and my father was still alive and now he is not. And I don't know what to do with that. And it helped me to both 
the, the illusion of normality, you know, of, of I'm still creating this thing, mm-hmm. even though the thing is not what it started off to be. That's okay. But it also helped me to have the rote process of editing. The ritual, yeah. Yeah, when I would get too much up into my head or too much into the emotions or whatever, just to have the 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 mind, it's not mindless, but it's a different part of my brain that I'm tapping into in order to do the editing, like that was helpful. But then once I started recording again and started fully recording new conversations again, Every conversation for months and months and months, my father would come up. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want that for a long time. I struggled against it. I would try and then I would get frustrated when I would get like 90% of the way through a conversation. And then I would refer to my dad in some way and I would be irritated with myself because I, I felt like I'm you know, this loss is defining my whole life. And then I realized that it was Mm -hmm. like it legitimately was. And my show was a product of its time. And part of the time was this incredibly traumatic loss that I went through. And if I want to be genuine and if I want to be true to who and what I am, that includes the fact that thoughts about my father's loss intruded in every area of my life. When I was traveling abroad, I ran into this divinity student. Her name was Trinity. I think she was from, I want to say Singapore. It's been a long time to show how (laughs) intact my memory is. But we were having an argument about ritual and why at that point, to my frustration, people would pursue it even if they didn't in the moment have any sense of a purpose or intent behind it. And what she said to me was that for some folks, for some times, you don't find the intent until you try, that you have to go through the ritual, the rite again and again and again to find the reason why. And in that same sense that the smile sometimes originates as the emotion and is expressed on the face and in others is expressed on the face and can stimulate the mind to say, oh, I'm smiling, I must be feeling great. Going through remembering wherever it occurs and however it does so, is part of how you incorporate the experience into your life, how you make it just a part of where you're at and the why and live through it instead of denying what's happened. You lost a portion of your memory, of your life, of yourself. You found some of it since and you've devised the rest. And that wasn't an act of a single moment. As you said, the tree was sacrosanct. It was an object you could return to to reflect and genuflect on who you were and use as a, a tome, a foundation almost, to say this is who Kate will be now or try to be and work from and grow from. And I think in the same way they say that grief or other kinds of trauma obliterate, so too does this in my life where I could choose to try to be who I was and had been or I can be who this lets me be. The third option and my husband would be rolling my eyes if he could hear this because I am known for coming up with a third option. If he says, do you want A or B? I find a C. And that the third option is that you try it, it doesn't work, and you've still learned something. Well, that's Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, right? Mm-hmm. All, the whole thing is, how do I fight the dilemma? I don't. <laughs> I take both horns of the bull and decide where it's going. Regardless of what the end result is, you do have to you have to accept, right, that 
neither what you tell yourself nor what the world tells you are the entirety. And I'll probably have, I think, as I mentioned to you, my rabbi on at some point, because he lost his son to mysterious circumstances and over time decided to interpret that mystery as a wonder he would never define. Just a reminder that there are things in life that are both wonderful and dreadful that you will never truly know. And that the world existence will have wonder in it for you to discover and contemplate and be surprised and amazed by. So that's a thing you can choose to dread, and you will sometimes, certainly, but you can also be in awe. Or, <laughs> Go choice for C, it. Go for it. Or, or it can neither be dread nor awe, but a learning moment that you move on from. And It can just be, to, to quote Vernon Foster and one of the local Hopi folks, when a hat blew all the way up from this woman who deemed herself a prophet, up a ladder onto the roof of this man's house, and she climbs up the length of it, goes on her little journey of significance, and asks the aged Hopi man, what was that? And he would just be the wind. And you get to choose what that means. You get to choose if that wind is divine providence, providence, if the, of divine providence. You get to choose if it's just the wind. And as one of my guests a while back, Eric Nevin, said, maybe it was divine. It's just God reminding you that not everything has to mean a thing. You ascribe to things, changes. It might even over time. So before we finish up, Kate, where can people find you? I am at IWB Podcast on all of the social medias, especially more frequently sort of in an engagement interaction way on Facebook. Okay. And since we talked about parasocial relationships, what do you want folks to contact you about? Oh, they they can contact me about whatever it is that they would like. Like, I love meeting new people. I love connecting with new people. Sure. It's more the understanding just because they expect me to know or welcome a certain thing doesn't mean I will. And so more specifically, don't send dick pics. <laughs> this episode meant a lot to me. Like, that's – I don't check downloads anymore. I, sure. I measure success by that. I have – a fair number of authors that come on my show that offer copies of the book for a giveaway. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes a comment on that thread. And then sometimes I'll have somebody who reaches out and just says, you know, I just, I, you know, I, I, I like, I like your style or, you know, can I join your Facebook group or can we just talk? Mm -hmm. Can we work on something together? Can we collaborate? All of that is, is appropriate in the moment. As long as when you answer, you understand that sometimes the answer has to be no. Kate, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. It's been a pleasure being invited. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our next one. Absolutely. <sighs> Rusty, this I suppose. It's... It's been a long time since I've shared anything formative on this show, though I wouldn't call this, of all things, performative. There's a moment when you were asked to write a eulogy. You, you know it's there. You never hope it will be there. But then one day it is. And folks expect you to know 
who to be, what to say, what to do in that moment. I've thought over the last few weeks whether to share this or not with all of you in your homes, but as I've said so many times on the show, stories aren't just things we create. They're a choice that we make based on the moments we live through, what they mean to us, how they'll affect us, what from them we choose to do. When my father died, I had friends and family say, you, you shouldn't be angry at him, you shouldn't hold any hate or loathing toward the moments that he wasn't his greatest or his best. And I had to laugh because how could I? He tried even in those last few when he didn't know who I was. He tried to be there as best he could. So how could I be mad? There is a great deal of pain, as always there is, I suppose, in these moments. And when I was asked to write the eulogy and when that day came that I had to, I couldn't sleep. So most of what I'm about to share with you is from that first day, that first night, and into the, the morning after and that Saturday. I, I couldn't read it revise it much more, or I suppose even rehearse it, which is why I'm taking this moment here to gather myself. It isn't, no, it isn't, it wasn't then at the funeral performance, and I hope, however I do this now, it will simply be who I am a few weeks later, sharing the same thoughts again. There was a time a few weeks ago when we went to visit my father at the rehab facility where he stayed. He was mostly delusional by then, and had been living in his own world at his own pace. He could recognize us, perhaps, for a breath, as we gave to him lemon cake, mostly gelatin, shortbread, or a cookie handmade, as he'd lift up for the moment his head to taste. But then the delusions that too would take, as he'd tear up and crumble the lemon cake, some of it ate, had princesses to save, projects do now, today, poor, poor souls, number eight, and all the rest of that cake to the dogs or the chickens again, ones that as a youth he'd have to attend. When in the middle of this he looked at my mother, held her wrist, felt the pulse at it, and said... This, this is where the ocean begins. My father, my father always had a facility with words. He loved James Thurber, that insouciant dry wit. Twain, of course, the Muppets. His first literary works were as a humorist for the school paper, then later as a researcher, analyst, though his advice sometimes erudite always had a certain roundabout sucker punch to it. At age 14, and already frustrated with life, I asked him one time, on the home-from-school drive, if there was any meaning, any purpose to all this. And he looked at me as if there were some historical anecdote or well as my father said line, for which he needed the moment to want, only to take that moment say nothing at all for the breath and reply. To live, just 
to live. The purpose of this is to live. When he later discovered my love for anthropology, for culture and folklore, for myth, he was elated. And how we seek meaning and purpose would convey it to those who have yet to live, would preserve what has been. And how, as he shared with me one day, even the people who predate us would bury the broken and aged with a fistful of flowers, fragrant and fresh-picked, the ephemeral, the temporal with the sacred. These souls who could not on their own without a community behold have continued to live. You'd be amazed, he said, looking out at his garden, at all of the places these roses have been. Doesn't get any easier to share, does it? Shortly before I completed grad school, I came back home my thesis to finish. It was a book, and not great. 450-some pages in five months, without a day to revise it. Then I left for Prague and Vienna on break, with only a copy of that in my place. And he read every page, dutifully read and line-edited, in blue ink and red, and when those two slowly faded in some peculiar and off-putting shades of gray, every page. For 450 pages in the appendices, too, of all that in the next draft, i change. The veritable sea of nearly completely illegible chicken-scratch cuneiform, Hebrew or perhaps Latin archaic, that meant almost nothing at all in the random flourish or inkblock petals he'd left on the page, or even the blur on the hole that they'd make. Thorns, roses, tulips, lilacs, lavender, that maybe. Where there was pulse and their breath and their hand to rest. Patience is only a soul who is given a new life, may. Who can hear and the clamor and clash and all that in coit, page after page, day after day, who could, when there's no other sense left to make, still to me, to us, say, this, this is where the ocean begins. <laughs> no. It doesn't get any easier to say, does it? As we shared on the show before, stories in some ways are no more than the thoughts and feelings we attach to patterns, to sensation as we live. They're things that we make to make sense of our existence, fictional or imagined. But we choose, always we choose, the beginnings and ends what they'll mean to us. God, I don't even know what I'm saying. I just, I still think of him. I still think of when we stood at Lagos, the old ice cream place we'd go to. This is just a few days ago, and I ordered from my family the chocolate on chocolate on chocolate, of course, that my brother and mother both like, and she asked anything else, and I said yes, of course, or was going to say yes, of course. Could you give me a cup of the black raspberry with chip? It was his favorite. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.